0: If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans as we continue our study through the word. So as we're coming to the last two chapters here of the book of Romans, you remember that the first eight chapters was the presentation of the gospel. And after Paul presents the gospel, the next three chapters dealt with the nation of Israel. And then beginning in chapter 12, we really moved into the section of how shall then I live now that I am a a born again believer filled with the Holy Spirit uh, in my life. What what does that impact, and how does that affect me? And you'll remember that chapter twelve began with you know to submit ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our just and our reasonable service, and and so as our identity now as a, a servant of uh, Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that we then were called to serve one another, that we've been given spiritual gifts, and we're to use those spiritual spiritual gifts to build uh, one another up. You will remember that the issue of authority and submission to authority, submission to the government uh, was something that we were instructed on. and, And we see that Paul is really dealing with the issue of learning how to love uh, our neighbor, learning how to be a servant uh, to uh, one another, to put on in Christ. And, and then he was talking about unity. Last time you'll remember, the issue was a spiritually mature person and a spiritually immature person. How do we end up blending them together? And you'll remember in particular, the Jews were coming out from underneath the law. And so their entire life had been in black and white, things that were clean and unclean. And, and now it was an issue that all things are clean. And, and so the believer that's mature, the, there is great liberty in that. But to the believer that is new in their faith, still holding on to some of those uh, predispositions that they had in their life. and And so the issue was that the believer who was mature was to make provision for the one who was immature that we're not to use our liberty in order to stumble others uh, in the faith. And so this loving one another and getting along together. Here in this chapter 15, we're going to see that that same concept really is going to be pushed forward. He's going to kind of summarize once again that law of liberty of, of loving one another. But also the issue that was difficult for the Jew was that Jews and Gentiles had always been separated. God had taken them and separated them out. They were to have nothing to do with the Gentiles whatsoever. But now suddenly there's Jewish Christians and there's Gentile Christians, and they're coming together into the same church to worship God. And so there was this this bit of this struggle of integration between the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. Now, Paul's never been to Rome, but this was an issue in the other churches, and so Paul now begins to minister to this issue. You see, he wants to show them that the believer now in the family of God underneath in Christ, this is not something that was a new concept in the Old Testament. But the Jews never really saw or understood that, that there was going to come a time uh, that the Jew and the Gentile were go, both going to be united underneath the headship of the Messiah. And so while it's a new covenant, it's something that God said that he was going to do, and he even put it into the Scripture. So Paul is going to bring some of those scriptures out to kind of show the Jews uh, that now they are to embrace the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, you to embrace the Jews into this family. We've been adopted into this family. and As brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to grow in the grace and knowledge, and we need to learn how to love uh, one another. And so the unity of the body of Christ. Now, the enemy is all about division, amen? He is seeking to destroy every single relationship that is in your life, and he seeks to destroy the interconnectivity within the body of Christ uh, as well. And so Paul is going to really be instructing them into what does the body of Christ uh, look like? Now, uh, we begin here in this first verse of the 15th chapter, and it says, We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. And let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now, Paul classifies himself as one of the mature believers, and he says, if you're a mature believer, then uh, we who are strong, uh, we are to put up with the the scruples of the weak, and and once again, not to use our liberty in order to stumble uh, a weaker brother in the faith. Let each of us please his neighbor, and so once again, preferring others. We see that true Christian love, it's not selfish. We see that it's seeks to share with others and and to make uh, others happy and to live for others. And so pleasing our neighbor, which then what leads to their edification, stumbling them is going to push them backwards on their path of growth. But uh, we want to do everything we can to be a stepping stone to one another, to help uh, each other uh, with a leg up uh, in uh, their faith. Now, Paul is going to tell us that uh, that this is the model of Christ, that once again, this is, as Jesus said, follow me. Paul will also say in his other epistles, follow me as I follow Christ. And so here, the example of serving others, of loving your neighbor, of preferring others, this again is the way that Christ lived out his life. It says, for even Christ did not please himself, but uh, as it is written, the reproach, Approaches of those who reproached you uh, fell on me. So you'll remember how Christ at the Last Supper disrobes and washes the feet of the disciples. And he says, uh, uh, an example I have made to you that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so uh, here we have that uh, issue of selfishness, of trying to use our liberty selfishly versus now loving others, esteeming others more highly than Ourselves. The issue really is selfishness, and it's hard to love somebody else when we are trying to put our own interests above others subordinating uh, ourselves to others. This this is what gives us the capacity to be able to love others, to kind of get out of the way of God's love flowing through us uh, on to others. He says, for whatever things were written before, were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, uh, might have hope. So uh, here again, we see the scriptures now have been given for our benefit. God gave them to us the living oracles to be able to guide us uh, into truth uh, and into righteous uh, living. 2 Timothy 3:16 reminds us all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction into righteousness. And so the word of God has been given to us in order to be able to guide us and to help us navigate through this life. Where Paul is going to go is Paul is going to now, after he has established uh, the the power of the scriptures and the importance of the scriptures, he's going to use the scriptures to show the Jews that Jews and Gentiles are going to be merged together into a new work that God is going to do. And while it's a new work, it's not something that hasn't been discussed or that God hasn't already declared that he is going to do it. So, the scriptures, they are given to us. They've been written for us. And we see that holy men move underneath inspiration. of The Holy Spirit recorded the scriptures. I, I marvel at the word of God, at the way in which men were writing things they didn't even understand. But the Holy Spirit is the one that was the author using all of these different lives, all of these different men, different languages, different continents, different centuries, and yet all of it into this one uh, unbelievable, cohesive, inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. All of it has been given. Heaven and earth will pass away, and my word will abide forever. It is amazing the way that it is living and breathing, that it is alive, the way in which you can read the same passage every single day in your life, and it will speak to you differently each time that you read that passage. I don't know if you're a person that highlights, you know, the, the verses that speak to you, but you know, I have old Bibles where I've highlighted them and I read the passage, and I'm like, why did I highlight that? You know, that that's not what's important. And this is the part of that, that passage that you know is important. It, it, it's because it, it is alive. God meets us, He ministers to us there. He says that I will meet you uh, in my word. It is the meeting place. Before, under the old covenant, when you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. That's where God was. God said that this is the place on the face of the earth, and He picked a, a physical location. The whole world could come to and, uh, and worship him. But when you want to meet with God today, you open up the word of God. He says, and that, that is my meeting place uh, with you. So the word of God has been given to us. It, it instructs us. It leads us uh, into righteousness and, uh, and into truth uh, in our life. In verse five, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here is the unity of the body of Christ that Paul is talking about. Now, as a family, we have diverse gifts. We have different personalities. We have different opinions on on things. how are we to be able to get to this place of unity? I, I see division in our culture more than I've ever seen it before. I see the uh, aggression of the division continuing to uh, to escalate in our in culture and, and we see that that is all part of the work of the enemy. Division, division, division. But when people come into the church they should experience this, this unity that is here that is unlike anything that they've ever experienced any place uh, else and and he says that there is a unity now in the mind that we are to have be like minded toward one another to be like minded How does that happen when you've got one opinion and I've got another opinion and and we see that I'm trying to convince you of of my opinion, you're trying to convince me of your opinion and you have this tug of war going back and forth and and yet it says that that we are to be like-minded. How does like-mindedness happen? Does it happen with whoever is the better person at arguing? The person who is better with words that can craft a a better argument and and now I pin you intellectually and force you over into uh, my opinion. Does it happen with power? Uh, The silence shut you out and use my will to force you to concede now and to to move over towards me. We have all of the dynamics of the way in in which we fight uh, with uh, each other, try and pull or push or influence uh, each uh, other uh, with one another manipulations and and all types of carnal fleshly ways in which uh, we seek to combat uh, one another over issues. But we see that the word of God teaches us a different way. Uh, the Word of God says that we're to be like-minded, like-minded. And so how do two people get to like-mindedness? This is important within the body of Christ between believers. It's essential in marriage that we become like-minded in our marriages, in our families, and in our relationships within our households. And and so where does like-mindedness come from? Well, Like-mindedness, biblical like-mindedness comes from uh, an abandonment of both people from their position. It means that I'm going to let go of my opinion. We differ on this issue. So you know what? I'm going to drop my end of the rope. You drop your end of the rope. And you know what? We'll meet in the mind of Christ. We're not going to meet in my mind. I'm not going to meet in your mind. What we're going to do is we're going to find the mind of Christ. And we're going to agree that whatever the mind of Christ is, that will be my mind. You see, as you take on the mind of Christ and the other person takes on the mind of Christ, you're going to have absolute unity in the mind of Christ. And and as ambassadors, right? And Paul would say, no longer am I my own. In other words, I'm an ambassador. Now, as an ambassador, you're representing the kingdom uh, that you are the ambassador for. Now, an ambassador is not allowed to give their personal opinion. An ambassador is there to represent the interest uh, of the kingdom, of the nation, of the government that they are representing. So what we do is we abandon our position. Uh, we are ambassadors now, and we teach take on uh, like-mindedness by taking on the mind of christ in every issue in every circumstance now when there is a difference uh, of opinion between two believers what you do is you simply say let's go meet in the mind of christ now how do i do that that means now we go and we search the scriptures You remember the Bereans, he says, who were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians, for they tested every single thing against the scripture. So on every single social issue, on everything that's happening in our nation, on everything that's happening in the world, here's the question. Where's the mind of Christ on that? Where's the mind of Christ? What's God's opinion on that? And so what we're doing, it's not about your opinion or my opinion. It's about the word of God and applying the word of God to the circumstances that are going on around us, even between interpersonal relationships, so that ultimately what we have is that we are like-minded. We're going to have diverse gifts. We're going to have diverse personalities, but we will have a like-mindedness because we'll have the mind of Christ. Now, remember that God isn't double-minded There's no double-mindedness in God. And so here we see that we're going to seek the Scriptures to be able to see the mind of Christ. And when we have the mind of Christ, there is going to be this collective unity. Now, what happens with this collective unity? He says that with one voice, we're able now to worship God. With one voice, we are able to bring glory to God. In verse 7, he goes on to say, and therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of uh, God. And so we see now he talks about how we are to receive uh, one another. Now, what does receive mean? To receive somebody. What does that mean? It means to grant one's access to your heart. It means to allow people into your heart. It means to take people in as friends. It means to edify one another, to please others, to serve others. And, and so there is this, this embrace. There is this welcoming that takes place. We see that within the family of God, we're to welcome each other. We're to open up our hearts to each other. When people come through these doors they shouldn't just be experience a group of polite people just hello, nice to see you, sit down. You know, just people that are just polite. Uh, you know, I call it the Wimbledon crowd. You know, they clap very proper. Yes, come sit down, you may go for There's no love, but everybody's very proper. Everybody's very polite with uh, one another. Receiving other people isn't about being polite with each other and uh, using good manners. It's about opening up your heart to friendship to love, to embrace. You see, this is the family that God's placed you into. He doesn't call you to just come into church and uh, out of church and to be polite when you come in and be polite when you depart. It's about entering in and loving uh, one another. And he says, as Christ also received us, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. In other words, Christ embraced you and loved you from the minute that you met him, uh, there was an embrace from God. God didn't wait for you to clean your life up. and Christ didn't wait for you to get things right in your life and and come back and and then, you know what? Okay, now I'll embrace you because, look, you're you're doing so much better. There was an immediate, uh, open mm, embrace. When people walk through those doors, it's up to us to give them an immediate, mm, open uh, embrace. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and, and Christ is welcoming, has his arms open wide to, to every single person. You see, I think that in our country today, one of the problems in the church that we've got is that we've become a consumer product of Christianity. In other words, when people come to church, they're, they're coming to to have the worship done and to have the service done, and, the, and they take it and they consume it, and then they depart when it's about being ready to come in and every single person you're a part of this service you're a part of ministering to every other person that comes into the church and and to be excited about receiving and becoming open to the people that are around you i think sometimes we you know we come into church and it's like they're in my seat (laughs) (laughs) Do they not know? We always sit here, you know, and, and the exact uh, opposite of receiving new people who is around me today and, and greeting one another and opening up, listen, opening up your heart to one another. Our culture is so radically changed, you know. We used to, did you ever notice this? Houses, even construction, used to be big front porches. And everybody was out on the front porches, and everybody knew their neighbors, and everybody was connected and together. And, and now everything is built into the backyards where you have the garages that come up and down, and boom, and you're inside, and, and now everything is separated. And once in a while, you're forced to actually see your neighbors at the mailbox if you don't wait till they're gone for you to go get <laughs> your mail so you don't have to interact. In the church, people are to come in and to experience this unity like they've never ever experienced it any place else in the world. He says we're to receive one another, welcome one another. Let God's love flow through you. Get to know uh, one another. Be friendly and and invite people into your life and into your heart. God placed you into this family and this is uh, your family. And so God is here. Paul is instructing them now not to not to come in and out, not to do drive by in church, but to be engaged. and And when you are in the parking lot and you're on your way into church, there is now this ministry mentality that God wants us to have of of we're going to go and to minister to one another within the body of Christ. You remember earlier. Paul's talking about using whatever spiritual gift you've got. If you've got the the gift of exhortation, how are you going to use that gift if you don't talk to people? If you're not able to engage them and say hello to them and to spend time, and one of the things that we do here at the church is we, you know, have our our, our fellowship hall and we we want refreshments and, and all of that so that people have that opportunity to be able to linger, to stay, to be refreshed, to engage one another, to be able to pray, encourage, use your gifts, and and welcome and embrace. This is this is the way the family is supposed to. Operate the way that God's desire is for us to experience this, this love, this koinonia, this, this community. And so receiving uh, one another, uh, just as Christ also received us, and it says all of it's going to go to the glory of God. Now, verse 8, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, Mercy, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And so here we see that Christ, it says, has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. So, what does that mean? It means that Christ Himself, in His earthly ministry, what did He do? He fulfilled the prophecies concerning Him. And so in those prophecies and in that confirmation, we see that Christ was ministering to who? To the Gentiles. Who were the scriptures given to? The Gentiles, I mean uh, to the Jews. The prophecies were given to the Jews and to the forefathers. And so when Christ came and fulfilled them, uh, he was ministering to the Jews. Now, scriptures tell us that Jesus came to his own and his own uh, received him not. But uh, he ministered to what? To confirm the promises made to the fathers. Now, Paul is going to show that these promises that were made to the fathers guess what they include? They include the prophecies that talk about how the Jews and the Gentiles are both uh, going to be joined together underneath the headship of the Messiah. And so for the Jew now who has accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they now are going to see that the scriptures talked about the Jews and the Gentiles being joined together underneath the Messiah underneath uh, Jesus and Christ. So now Paul's going to run through some scriptures that talk about this concept from the Old Testament of the Jews and the Gentiles listening, worshiping God together. So uh, he begins, and now for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles. I will declare God among the Gentiles and sing uh, to your name. And so this is a, a quotation from David and comes from his song of deliverance in verse 10. And again he says now talking about the Old Testament rejoice O Gentiles with his people. So, so the Gentiles are going to be rejoicing together with the, uh, the Jews. Now that comes from Moses' valedictory song that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 11. And again praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Laud him all you peoples. So now we see the Gentiles together with the Jews. Now and praise in God. That comes out of the Psalms in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now, uh, this is from Isaiah's uh, uh, prophecy chapter 11. Now, Jesse That was the father of King David. And David, you'll remember the promise to David was given that from the son of David, the Messiah is going to come. And so here we see the Messiah is going to rise up and he's going to reign over the Gentiles and in him the Gentiles shall hope. And so the scriptures are showing that the Gentiles are going to come underneath the authority of the Messiah. Now the Jews always believed that they were underneath the Messiah and the Messiah and the Jews were going to rule over the world. But now uh, we see that the plan of salvation, the new covenant is, is that the Messiah is going to come and he will be the Messiah to the Jews, but he's also going to be Messiah to the Gentiles. And now the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be joined together. So it's interesting when you look at the scriptures that Paul used here and he strung these together that of course they're all from the Old Testament, but we see that they're from the three different parts of the Old Testament. They're from the writings of Moses, they're from the prophets and they are also from the Psalms. And, and, and then also he took three of the most influential uh, of the writers. He, he took David, he took Moses, and he took uh, Isaiah and he put these the scriptures together to show now uh, that the Jews and the Gentiles are to come and, and we're to love one another, be integrated. Uh, we are to receive uh, each other now with in the body of Christ and we are not to be divided. Now, uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, he'll say there's no division between believers. Scythian, barbarian, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, that we are all absolutely equal in the eyes of God. And now there is no separation between us uh, whatsoever. He says, now may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace, and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, being filled with all joy and all peace, and, and that we will experience in unity as we are worshiping God together. In verse 14, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness. Filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish uh, one another. Now, Paul has a high opinion of the believers that are there in Rome. He hasn't uh, met them. He's never visited there, but uh, he's not talking down to them. He says, you've got the power of the Holy Spirit. You you have knowledge. You have the ability to admonish uh, one another. But now Paul is going to establish once again his apostolic authority that God has given to him the authority to be able to, uh, to operate uh, in the realm of the Gentile churches. He says, verse 15, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here again, Paul is just uh, establishing that uh, he's been commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And and, and he says, notice that the offering of the Gentiles, Paul kind of sees the fruit from his ministry as the the people that have come to know God uh, as, as kind of this offering, offering unto God of the fruit of his ministry but Paul's not going to take credit for the salvation of the people that have uh, come to receive the gospel he knows that that is completely uh, a work of God that he is just the the vessel he says therefore verse 17, I have reason to glory in Jesus Christ and the things which pertain to God in other words his, uh, there is fruit in his ministry in the churches that he has established so I have reason to glory he says I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. So he's giving all credit to Christ uh, there in word and in deed to make the Gentiles obedient, obedient to to the word of God. He says in verse 19 in mighty signs and wonders by the power uh, of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and around about Elycrium I have fully preached uh, the gospel of Christ. Now once again Paul is an apostle, mighty signs and wonders when you study the book of Acts and you look at the way that God used Paul as an apostle and You'll remember that when he was in Lystra and there was the cripple and he takes the cripple by the hand and stands up and the cripple is healed. You'll remember when Eliam is the sorcerer there that he just it blinds him. Eutychus, when he falls out of the window in his dead and he brings him back to life. You'll remember the healing of Paul. Wherever he went, he was healing people of their infirmity. So much so did his reputation go forth that they believed, that just the sweatband or his apron if you brought that to people who were sick that they would be healed by that and what did that do? That just confirmed not only the messenger, but also the message of what he was preaching. And so here again he says it was the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't any power that Paul had to be able to do that. And so Paul was pointing all glory now in the empowerment of him being able to go forth and to fully preach the gospel. He says verse 20, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation but as it is written to whom he was not announced they shall see and those who have not heard uh, shall understand. So you'll remember that when Paul first uh, was in ministry, you remember how he was brought over to Antioch, and Antioch was a thriving church, and they got him because they uh, needed help, and that's where Paul really began to minister. But that was building on another man's ministry. Paul then, you remember, went out on the missionary journeys and goes out on three different missionary journeys. Now remember that he's writing this letter at the end of his third missionary journey. It's the winter time uh, of his third missionary journey. As soon as spring hits, Paul is going to head back. He's making that collection, remember, from the Gentile churches to go and to uh, help uh, now with the poor that are in Jerusalem. And so uh, he now uh, is declaring, letting them know that uh, he's planning on coming to them. He wants to come to the the saints that are in uh, Rome, but uh, his travel plan has not allowed him the ability to be able to to do that uh, yet. But uh, Paul always was preaching not on another man's foundation, but he was a church planter and he was bringing the gospel where it had never been preached, where churches had not been uh, established. And, and so verse 22, he says, and for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. For what reason? Because he was consumed with the church planting that he was doing, going back on these missionary trips and establishing them. And, and now, the churches are in good shape. He's going to bring this collection to Jerusalem, and now his next plan is to go visit them in Rome after he drops off in this collection. So he hasn't been able to come to them because of the churches that he has been involved with, but he says, verse 23 but now no longer having a place in these parts, meaning the the churches are doing well, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So, Paul's next frontier uh, is he wants to continue moving west. uh, And so he has been spending his time in Asia Minor uh, and there in Greece. uh, And now he plans on hitting Rome. And then he wants to go to Spain. He wants to springboard from Rome uh, over to Spain. And so that is his next uh, uh, missionary trip that he wants to be able to to go on. He says in verse 25, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So he's wintering in Corinth, uh, and then he is going to take this collection, bring it to Jerusalem in the spring And then uh, he is ultimately planning on uh, heading to Rome. He says of this collection now, he says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. He says that uh, the Gentiles have been partakers of the spiritual blessings uh, of uh, in Jerusalem and, and now the Gentiles are going to uh, bless the saints that are there uh, in Jerusalem in material blessings and so being able to bless uh, one another with our different spiritual gifts and the different blessings that God has given to us. He says, but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And so uh, what is he saying? He says he's been longing to get there, but uh, the Holy Spirit's been preventing him as he has been working in these other churches. But once he comes, he knows that he is going to come in the (laughs) fullness now uh, of the blessing of God. Verse 30, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. It's interesting because Paul here gives the first indication that we have that trouble awaits for him in Jerusalem. You remember that he is going to head to Philippi. He is going to spend Passover at Philippi. And then he is going to try and get to Jerusalem for for Pentecost, for the Feast of uh, Pentecost. And and remember, as he makes his travels back, Book of Acts records it, each place he goes, the prophets and the word and the Spirit is speaking to him, telling him that trouble is waiting for him there in Jerusalem. Here he's asking them to strive together uh, with me in prayer for me, for those that are in Judea, the Jews that do not believe. And so we see that ultimately what happens, remember he's arrested. Uh, When he gets there, he is put into prison, transferred to Caesarea, waits there three years. Finally, he appeals to Caesar. And then ultimately Paul ends up in Rome uh, on his uh, appeal. What about his desire to go to Spain. Does Paul ever realize that uh, that desire? Church historians are not um, absolutely sure it's possible. It's possible because remember that at his first trial, Paul appears to be acquitted and to be released. Uh, and, and so many believe that it is during that uh, that time period in between his uh, release and his rearrest that Paul from Rome may very well have uh, gone to Spain. And, and there are some traditions in that direction, but we don't know for absolute certainty. But what we do know is even in the winter before he ever begins his travel back. He's asking for prayer uh, for the possible trouble that could uh, end up happening there in uh, Jerusalem. He says, though, uh, verse 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Uh, amen. So Paul concludes the, uh, the letter here. We're going to see in the next chapter all of the, the personal greetings and the encouragements and, uh, and all in the next uh, uh, chapter here that closes the book of Romans. As we close our study right now, I want to just take a look for a minute back at verse 13. Back at where it says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to live in a a place of hope. I was thinking about people that have hope, and then people that don't have hope. People that are hopeless. What is hopeless look like have you ever met mm, hopeless people they're they're people that are stuck in their lives they they don't see a way moving forwards maybe it's bad decisions that they have made or uh, unfortunate circumstances that have mm, overcome them there's an expression that, that says that you made your bed now what (laughs) lie in it you know it's like okay this is this is my lot this is this is going to be my life and so uh, they live in this state of uh, of hopelessness there's there's people that have a little bit of uh, hope but then there's the people that are just filled with "Mm, no god wants your life to be filled listen Filled, abounding means mm, overflowing. Like you have extra hope rolling off of you that you, you can give it away to others and, uh, and still you have uh, more hope than, uh, than you even uh, can, can manage in your, in your own life. That, that's the state that God wants you to be experiencing your life. And here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that that's not going to be circumstantial. It it is not because of the circumstances that are in your life. God doesn't promise any of us a free pass in this life. God doesn't promise that we're going to be able to just simply have everything going our way all the time. But he gives us access now to this hope, to abounding in this hope by coming into his presence and by experiencing our relationship with him. You see, our relationship with him, we're invited to continue to draw nearer and nearer to God. The Bible says to grow in the grace of and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we want to be able to continue to grow. And in his presence, listen to this, in the presence of God is the fullness of joy, is the fullness of joy. Now, I might not be able to change my circumstances uh, here in my life, but what I am able to do is I am able to continue to press in in this relationship that I have with God. Now, you'll remember Paul. Paul's arrested. He's beaten in Philippi. He's thrown in the jail. He's in stocks. It's the middle of the night. It's midnight. And what's Paul doing? He's worshiping God. He's singing praises with God. They, they can take everything away from us. They can lock us up stuff in prison. They They can do whatever they want. But you know what they can't take away is our relationship with God. And our ability to enter into his presence and to enjoy the fullness uh, of God. It has been said of Christianity that Christianity is, is that state where they can take everything away from them and they've lost absolutely nothing. Everything can be taken away from you. And do you know what? You haven't lost anything. Because we have the fullness of God in our lives. And so it's it's interesting here. It says that we might abound uh, in in hope. Now, it's interesting also this word hope in the original language, in the Greek language, a little bit different word than we think of when we think of hope. When we use the word hope, there's an element. It's optimism with an element of doubt in it. Are you going to be able to make it to the party tomorrow? I hope so i 'm not sure my kids are sick, but if they 're feeling best, but I hope to be there so so it 's optimism, but there 's doubt. I hope that I get my job, I hope that I get my promotion i uh, I hope, and so well, hope has this this optimism, but th- there is doubt in the original language there 's no doubt whatsoever. Hope means an absolute assurance that that you have the hope that you have in the, our English language you have the absolute assurance of it when when it says that may the god of hope fill you that word change it to assurance may the god of assurance the god who gives absolute assurance that he will fill you with all joy and peace believing that you may abound in the assurances the assurances of what the assurances of the promises of God that you You have the absolute promises of God to be able to hold on to in your life. And so what is the promise of God? The promise of God says that you're going to go from glory to glory, to glory, to glory, all the way into his presence, into the fullness uh, of uh, glory. And so uh, it says here that uh, may the God of assurance fill you. May you be filled, listen, with all joy joy from the love of God in your life a joy that comes from the overflow of God's love in your life and absolute peace that you would be at peace with God and that you would be at in peace uh, with those that are uh, around you the bible instructs us that as much as depends on us be on peaceable terms with uh, with everybody that is around us god wants your life filled with joy He wants your life filled with peace. He wants you to continue to pursue your relationship with him, that he is the one that might continue to fill you to overflowing with these things uh, uh, that are in our life. That is the promises of God. And we're either going to believe those and hold on to those and look at those and walk uh, in those, uh, or... We're going to look at our circumstances uh, in our lives uh, and we're going to be pulled down by the cares uh, of this world or we're going to cast all our cares on Christ the author and the finisher of our faith. We are going to hold on to the promises of God and we're going to receive the joy and the peace that is going to overflow our hearts. And that is what's going to give us the capacity to be able to love others. When we are filled first ourselves, then we are able to be able to love others and to allow others to experience that joy and that peace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we get to abound in this hope, the assurance of your promises, that we can be filled with all joy and with all peace. Lord, we love you. Help us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.